Ah, now, welcome, Chop Shop listeners, to a long-promised and long-awaited special report. The death of a whale. This has got to be the one thing out of 2020 that was unambiguously a good thing. Yeah. It wasn't totally unexpected, but the fact that we're seeing this now when we can still deal with it, rather than, you know, later when we're fighting in the third resource war, um, that can only be a good thing. Like, no fallout future for us here. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) Um... So, what do we mean by that? Um, I, I, I mean, I think we need to, like, clarify our thesis here because it's, like, obviously it's a little provocative and we believe that, well, the death of oil um, doesn't mean that, like, you know, every... Every oil derrick and every fracking pump and every refinery just spontaneously disappeared and no longer has an effect on the real economy. Um, but that, that's obviously absurd. <laughs> that would be nice, but that's not quite where we're at here. No. No. What we're, lo- what we're looking at more is the crises unleashed by COVID have... Yeah forced a lot of deep systemic problems in the oil industry to the surface all at the same time in a way that has permanently crippled their standing in the global economy and their capacity to continue as the largest and wealthiest real industry. Yeah. Like, this is this is what powers everything. This is what enables neoliberalism to work at all. This is why you can ship labor um, by, you know, shipping fish from uh, England, t- you know, 10,000 kilometers to China and then ship them back because supposedly that's cheaper. Somehow. somehow. Um, They're going to have to get used to doing that stuff locally. um, Because that's fucking stupid. Yeah. And it's just not sustainable anyway. And the other part of how oil money and all of this made neoliberalism as we know it possible is by creating big, fat piles of capital that could be easily invested and then fucked around with by Mm -hmm. the financial system. It's no coincidence that the rise of finance from being a significant force in the economy to being the wealthiest industry by valuation on the planet, whether or not that valuation should really be counted since arguably all they're doing is distributing capital. They're not actually creating new value. Hmm. 
is, you know, it goes back to the 1970s when you saw significant fluctuations in things like the price of oil and significant flows of oil capital coming out of the Middle East and being deposited in American and British banks, who then promptly used it to do various kinds of sorcery that caused the first modern debt crisis, and you can draw a straight line from there to where we are today. Yeah. A lot of the chaos of the 73-74 period has to do pretty indirectly with oil and its massive effect on the economy. Um, because it's, you know, a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil. I can move it wherever I like, and it will still retain value. Um, it's arguably easier to transport than gold. People watch for gold. Um, people don't really bat an eye at a barrel full of crude. And yeah, this is the thing that's made the society we live under possible. So what does it mean that it's dead? Well, here at Chop Shop, we're not going to go so far as to say oil's fucked, 2021, they'll be gone, the end. But rather, the problems within the oil industry that have been exposed by COVID and by deeper underlying things which we will get into in a minute have pushed an industry that depends on continuous expansion into a place where they are contracting and they are likely to never be in a position to easily expand ever again yeah so shall we get into why we think this and you know What's been the big problem that's plagued the oil industry? Like, some of the old heads will probably remember um, all that nonsense about peak oil. Oh, yeah. Um, like, it's 2003, and um, unless we invade Iraq immediately, um, we're going to hit peak oil, and the U.S. economy is going to be destroyed, so really we have to kill a million Iraqis to um, secure our future. And that didn't happen. I mean, the killing Iraqis part, that happened. But the dire predictions of what would happen if we didn't control... Um, you know, half the Mideast oil, um, they didn't pan out. Um, and a part of this is because a <laughs> lot of the bullshit that you might remember that was floating around during the Bush years about peak oil was taking the core concept and then just sort of running away with it like nobody's business because there is a thing called peak oil and it's actually similar to other forms of peak resource production like it's just a thing you see in natural resource economies and yeah. the economics of all this where you will sooner or later reach a point where the easily exploitable deposits of your given resource and it can be oil it can be coal it can be copper it can be like nitrates it can be fucking bat shit clinging to the walls of caves there will be eventually a point where the easily extracted deposits 
have been taken. And from now on, the new deposits and new exploitation is going to get more expensive. It is going to create reducing return on investment and shrinking actual production. Eventually, you will hit a point where it is just no longer profitable to continue to do business. And arguably, the U.S. hit peak oil already during the early 1970s. Where, and you can see this ever since, where all expansion of oil production in the United States, ever since the West Texas fields hit their peak in the late 60s, has been in offshore drilling, Arctic drilling, fracking, all these things that are, by definition, marginal sources of production and sources of production that are increasingly expensive. Yeah. It's worth noting that the reason fracking was the huge deal it was for a time was because it kind of it kind of promised the the world again. There was suddenly a lot more resources that could be tapped um, if only you know we cause minor earthquakes um, every time we inject um. <laughs> know, flammable water. Yeah, yeah, things like that. Um, you know, mortgaging um, Pennsylvania's future for oil today. Um, and the exploitation of, you know, Alberta's tar sands, the back and crude, um, all that stuff. Um, we've been chasing, you know, marginal sources, but at the same time, they've become kind of less marginal because now we understand how to fully exploit them and it's you know it's not just as simple as sticking a derrick into a field in west texas not um, anymore not anymore but it was before a time it was like you know um it didn't matter because there's it, oh, almost infinite oil if only we you know frack every possible rock um of course fracking hits its own particular problem of how the boom was even possible and this is sort of a deeper problem in the oil industry in general and that's called cost of production and that basically is explaining the cost it takes to make a barrel of oil and depending on what your source is where you're drilling it from infrastructure concerns and all that that cost is going to change. And it also depends on the quality of the oil. Like, currently, the cheapest oil on the planet to produce, and this has not changed since the 1930s, is in Saudi Arabia, in the eastern provinces, around Dharan and in the Persian Gulf. Um, mm -hmm. Arabian Sweet Light Crude has, for decades, posted a production price that's in, like, single dollars per barrel. Like, it is... It takes very little to refine it. It's very easy to drill it out of the ground. It's just absolutely the best thing you can get from an oil industry perspective. And yeah. that used to be the case in a lot of places like Texas and California. Funny how people forget that California was also a big oil state. Um, and yeah. other similar places. Um, that's no longer the case for a lot of stateside 
oil production in the U.S. It's also not the case for a lot of land-based oil production around the world, really. Um, like, you have to go to places like the Persian Gulf and Iran to get that super cheap oil, once again. Everywhere else, cost of production is more expensive. If you're doing something like, say, an offshore oil rig, it is significantly more expensive. It takes You have to make at least $40 per barrel to be able to make that stuff profitable. Because you have to build the rig. You have to drill underwater. You are operating in very suboptimal conditions for your equipment because things like salt water and the ocean are not friendly to industrial machinery. And then you have to ship it from the platforms to the refineries and so on. Like there's a lot of costs in there. Those costs go up even more if you're doing somewhere like Siberia or the Arctic where the cost is well over $60 a barrel. Um, or like, say, the North Sea, which is around 50 a barrel. Um, fracking was around 65 a barrel because the shit you get out of tar sands and Bakken crude is some of the filthiest, dirtiest oil on the planet. It is very expensive to refine. Some of it can't even be used for anything that is more intensive than, like, say, ship diesel, which is some of the dirtiest fuel on the planet. Um and the actual production itself is very resource intensive and you know again lights people's tap water on fire and causes earthquakes and people generally don't like having fracking in their neighborhood for strange unfathomable reasons (laughs) (laughs) so obviously this leads to a problem what happens when all of this stuff starts getting depleted. Um, all of a sudden, you've got an asset is sitting on your books that's basically turned into a liability. In the worst case, you're going to pay to like repair the place you were just drilling out of six weeks ago. Um, thankfully, in the United States, you don't have to do that. Um, you can just leave it. Um, I mean, you know, the EPA will be after you, but that's what bankruptcy is for. Yeah. <laughs> that's what the feds are for. And, and this is a thing that is largely discussed in climate circles, and I'm really surprised this term hasn't come up a lot more with mainstream economists in the past year, is this thing called the carbon bubble. Yeah. And this is was, anyway, a theoretical concept until 2020 happened. Um, and the theory goes that... The way fossil fuel companies, not just oil, but also coal and natural gas, are valued is based on the assumption that they will be able to pump, refine, and burn every single scrap of uh, pumpable, refinable, and extractable fossil fuels that they have laid claim to. Yeah. This would also mean we would have a climate that looks something like Venus, I mean, let's not overstate it. Like, extracting literally all of the oil would be bad. There are, uh, there were periods in the, uh, the history of this planet where basically there was a lot of free carbon and it wasn't very hospitable for us mammals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you like the idea of not dying of heat stroke because you stepped outside your front door, then you would 
probably prefer that everybody not burn this stuff. Unfortunately, if you are a fossil fuel company or a bank or anyone else who has invested in a fossil fuel company, this is bad. Yeah. Current climate science predictions say, and this has probably dropped since, I haven't checked this recently, but like the sort of ballpark figure that they gave for how much we could safely burn without fucking the climate beyond all repair is around 10% of all estimated reserves. Which yeah. means these companies have a lot of stranded assets that in any post-carbon world will be worthless. Like, who wants to buy an oil rig that literally all it can do is sit in the ocean and keep the drill closed so that you don't accidentally do another deep water horizon? Like, who needs coal mining equipment if coal mines are being filled in? Yeah. And it's worth noting here that the thing with Petro is it's not all just transport um, fuel. Um, that's like, uh, that's about half of like, you know, our global needs for oil. But the thing of it is, is transportation is being solved. Industry is being solved. And there isn't really enough um, demand for oil that would make it profitable, even if you still had to extract some um, just to keep industry going. Um, <sighs> and you could still like extract at least some and use it for like plastics and what have you without destroying the planet it's just there is a slight problem called the for at least if you're an oil industry executive that the amount of money that they make off of plastics and other similar chemical production is a significantly smaller fraction yeah of what they actually drill oil for than they actually are you know do it would be hilariously unprofitable for these companies to keep operating at the scale that they are and only make material for plastics yeah like this is uh, this is also a problem because the marginal sources so we need to back up a bit and explain um what light versus heavy crude means um heavy means that it's bound up in mostly the heavy hydrocarbon fractions um that's where you get diesels that's where you get um Bayman, um the really heavy tarry products um now you can crack um, these heavy hydrocarbons into lighter ones, but that's energy intensive. You're, and if you have to crack all of it, well, you know, that drives up um, 
the cost of production that makes the barrel overall less profitable um, because you can't just turn it all into diesel. Um, and if it has too high a sulfur content, i.e. it's sour, um, it's less useful for the sort of light industrial processes that we're talking about. Um, like, that's, that's part of the reason why Arabian crude is so valuable, um, chemically speaking. Because you don't have to do a lot of refining deep magic to uh, make use of it. You can just almost use it directly. Um, you don't have to do a lot of uh, cracking and such. And that's the problem with a lot of the marginal sources like Bakken or um, the Alberta tar sands. <laughs> yeah, those aren't very useful unless you need to keep an entire fleet of marine diesels um, online for the foreseeable future. Uh, which would fuck the planet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and what also is important to mention when we're talking about costs here is there's another thing that's been happening in the world of energy that is directly related to costs. Yeah. And that is the largely unmentioned, at least in a lot of mainstream press, like you can find this in specialist um, trade papers and stuff, and it's starting to creep into like CNBC and Bloomberg a bit more is the sort of quiet renewable revolution that's happened over the past decade oh, where, yeah. and for anyone who has seen that absolutely atrocious Michael Moore documentary about this, please put it down. He's done good work before this time. He completely shot the bed because he depended entirely on data that's 10 years out of date now it was true 10 years ago mm -hmm. back when obama could have done things and at least did some things to help the renewable process along that renewables were not cost competitive at scale with dirty sources of fuel yeah that's just all there was to it. The battery problem had not been solved. Cost of production was still at a level where it was just not terribly cost effective. Like you can go back and you can look at like advertising for solar companies like 10 years ago. And most of how like say residential solar, for example, was pitching their stuff was saying long term, this will eventually pay for itself. And you also get to pat yourself on the back because you're contributing to the solution and not the problem. Like, it was kind of almost making a very elite versus a mass market appeal when we're talking marketing terms for a minute. Like, they were doing the Rolls-Royce thing instead of the Ford thing because they couldn't do the Ford thing. Yeah. Like, you couldn't. <laughs> you can, now you can stay off the grid that the filthy pores have to use. <laughs> Exactly. You get to feel good about your, like, umpteen million flights that spike your carbon footprint through the floor because at least your house is heating its water with solar panels or something. It was very, like, it was a niche market. Fast forward 10 years, well, we'll just sort of let the news do the talking. 
in January, the National Renewable Energy Lab uh, released their latest findings on the cost of renewables and found that they have basically beaten all sources of dirty energy in terms of cost. The renewable cost curve has not only caught up with dirty fuel, it has completely choked it out. And in a more recent study that was released in October of 2020, to make it even more fun, the, no, sorry, September, the NREL released updates to their projections, and their projections, which already at the beginning of 2020 were at record lows for all renewable sources of energy, have revised them down even further. So we have reached a point where from a pure cost-benefit analysis, renewables have gone from being kind of the nice sort of fringe, it'll make you feel good long-term investment to this beats the shit out of fossil fuels with a stick. Yeah. And... Like it is cheaper, it's more reliable, <laughs> you, can, you don't have to worry about weird ass supply chains or market fluctuations like suddenly renewables have gone from being cutting edge if you know technology that's supposed to not have promise for another 20 years to where you would be a fool not to install a renewable grid if you could afford it yeah i mean it's like the major difference from like from how like the hobbyist perspective is Solar used to be this thing that you you had to buy a lot of expensive equipment to make use of it. Um, everything was very fussy and locked in. So installers, when they existed, they like they could basically charge whatever they wanted because only they could figure out the secrets of lead-acid batteries and um, solar panel controllers and and actually working inverter. Um, and everything was much less efficient. Now you can buy this crap on AliExpress um, from, like, small 100-watt systems all the way up to um, basically whatever your power requirements are. Um, it's it's an amazing change. Like there are you know thousands of suppliers now that can get you you know charge controllers that can get you panels that can get you everything you need, and it more or less just works. Um, it's much less annoying to work with. <laughs> and most importantly, when we're talking battery tech in particular. The shift in battery technology has made it possible for solar and wind to jump from being a thing that you could use for only residential, commercial, and industrial power, and, you know, roll it back 10 years, there was no way you were going to get enough out of your renewable grid to use it for industrial purposes, full stop, to mm -hmm. now batteries have made it possible for renewables to displace oil. 
Like, we now have things like electrical batteries for not just, you know, your Tesla Roadster or something, but for fucking semis and earth movers and other things that were supposed to be locked in to diesel for the foreseeable future. Like, there's even talk of, like, ship recharging stations for container ships that would take those things off of heavy ship diesel. So... We've been seeing, and this is not just immediately suddenly popped up in this year, like in 2017, the renewable cost curve was beating coal. Like it was already at the point where it was cheaper to go renewable than to open a new coal plant. Yeah. And And there was speculation (laughs) that it would catch up with oil eventually. Yeah, that was part of why the death of coal was happening. Like, it is surprisingly expensive to get coal from the mine to where it needs to go. And a few years ago, we crossed the point where um, it makes any sense to do that because it's more energetically expensive to move this entire consist of coal train um, you know, from the mine to the plant, it no longer makes sense. It's not energy dense enough. Um, it literally can't keep up. That's partly why the coal has been gradually replaced with natural gas, and now natural gas is being displaced by renewables. And <laughs> so, yeah, this is a situation where it's not just oil is being forced into increasingly marginal environments under like the existing pressures in the oil industry to constantly expand. Yeah. Like oil is an industry that does not rest. It cannot rest. Its business model is built on continuously increasing production. You've had someone over here going, yeah, we're just going to like eat up your market share from behind slowly, quietly, and now suddenly and very loudly when it's too late. Yeah. And this is part of why we've seen things like the shale boom and bust that happened over the past decade was partly because oil prices were just high enough because of shit going on with Russia and Saudi Arabia to make fracking profitable up until first in 2015 when the Saudis dropped the price of oil specifically to kneecap American fracking. And it did, quite viciously. Yeah. And then in this past year. So we've seen this situation where geopolitical concerns have injected, as they always do, volatility into oil markets while the renewables are sitting over here getting, you know, predictably cheaper and have nice predictable costs. Like between the between the off-grid solar revolution and the revolution in commercial solar and wind technology um like take the 18650 battery um that's a reference to um 18 millimeters wide 65 millimeters tall um it's a standard lithium battery size and the capacities for those have gone from 1800 to 
3,000 in the past decade. Um, and that's not even, uh, that's just like a basic standard commercial product that's not, it's not particularly good at anything. It's, but it's a battery um, that, you know, you can standardize on. And, I mean, hell, that's, that's how the Teslas used to be built. Um, I believe they're changing their um, battery module size, but for the longest time, it was 18650s, just stringing enough of them together to make it all work. And uh, the fact that we were able to, you know, get lithium batteries and then get them up to the point where you know you can drive a vehicle on them you can power house for several days on a large enough pack um things like that it's <sighs> yeah it's it's basically <laughs> these are things that have been developing and yeah. these instabilities particularly around russia and saudi arabia have also been there these are factors that have existed and these were also factors that people like us who were watching the energy industry were going, okay, this is adding up to sooner or later, there's going to be a serious confrontation over this. But most industry watchers, including radicals like us, were assuming based on that oil is sort of integral to society even now. And... Mm -hmm based on that these guys are fuck off unbelievably wealthy like these are this is an industry that doesn't buy congress members they buy legislatures at yeah. wholesale prices like the sheer amount of political muscle they had to throw around left everyone expecting that the fight for climate change was going to be grinding trench warfare for the next decade assuming you had the dream combo of Corbyn in the UK, Bernie in the US, better people in the EU, and, like, Vladimir Putin, like, choking on a pretzel or something. Um, and Narendra Modi falling on his head. But, you know, <laughs> if all those things had happened, it still would have been the expectation was, shit's gonna take a while, these guys are gonna go down swinging, and they've just got too much ingrained power to go quietly yeah or quickly for that matter <laughs> boy were we wrong <laughs> oh yeah i mean i didn't i didn't really think that the um oil industry would be killed until like until basically you know arabia got depleted um like you know the last of the um, Alaskan and Siberian oil is tapped. Um, half the planet's on fire, but um, the oil finally ran out in 2050. So, um, something like that. We're bound. <laughs> um, and, and you know, we can thank certain unnamed parties, <laughs> along with COVID, for accelerating the situation. Because there's a tiny bit of background to get into before we talk about the year oil died. And that tiny bit of background involves a refinery in Saudi Arabia and a drone. So, in late 2019, a drone 
owned by unknown parties. Many have speculated that it was Iran or Iranian-backed militias in Yemen. Maybe both, who knows? I mean, Iran's method of covert operations tends to be, yes, we got it, and we're not going to take credit, but everyone fucking knows that the mafia killed the judge on the plane, even though the mafia doesn't say it. You know, same kind of thing. Um, So this little drone flew in and blew up one of the biggest refineries in Saudi Arabia. Now, it didn't, like, completely demolish the thing, and what's actually pretty funny is when Iranian officials were confronted over this, they said, if we did it, the place would have been leveled. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which is why people have been trying to pin it on the Houthis. Um, I hope I pronounced that right. Um, Yeah. Take that with whatever size grain of salt you will. I mean, I personally think that's transparent bullshit, but whatever. It's still, however nailed saudi oil exports right in the sweet spot and russia who's their biggest competitor outside of opec took advantage of this temporary decline in production to boost their own production and seize market share from saudi exports this is bad for the saudis because they need to export that oil at a certain rate that allows for mr bonesaw to keep his 12 palaces functional. Yeah. I mean, he's got a lot of failed children to pay off. And so did his dad. <laughs> and, you know, those champagne fountains don't pay for themselves. Oh, yes. Um, the special um, city with um, the artificial moon and all that, like, that doesn't pay for itself, you know? Um. Exactly. <laughs> so the stage was set by a highly successful irregular strike for mm-hmm. what would come to follow. And it all began first with COVID. Yeah. The initial shutdowns, particularly in Wuhan and other parts of China, caused a decline in oil consumption, which was noted with concern by market analysts, but Not any serious alarm, at least not yet. This, by the way, is all happening at about the same time as that uh, NREL report from January 21st saying, oh yeah, renewables are fucking dragging on fossil fuels like nobody's business. Um, Yeah. Meanwhile, um, a few people in Canada and America who had traveled to Japan and China uh, recently were mysteriously sick for some reason. Um, Loss of taste, you know, things like that. No big deal, but... You know, everyone was expecting that this latest disease scare was going to go away. Mm -hmm. That it was going to go the way of SARS um, or the swine flu, and business would get back to usual. You know, this would just be a dip. Maybe it would cause a recession. I mean, granted... We think that that's optimistic bullshit. We were saying that when this was all going down, at least the economic part. We we didn't see the COVID part coming, getting this bad. But oh yeah, even the economic aspect was probably a touch too optimistic. And then, <laughs> you know, COVID kicks off. The lockdowns kick in. The economy goes into a death spiral as the Dow Jones jumps off a cliff. Everyone remembers all that shit. And if you don't, well... We don't blame you. It's been 2020. It feels like that was 10 years ago now. Yeah. 
We had some very celebratory episodes back then, if you really want to listen to our back catalog. <laughs> um, Start around episode three. Yeah. <laughs> That's about where things started to go off the rails. Um, so, from the perspective of oil, this was bad. Yeah. Dropping consumer demand means less stuff's being shipped, means people aren't traveling as much, means people aren't buying oil. But this was manageable until March 8th, when the Saudis responded to the growing global catastrophe, and to Russia not looking so hot and horning in on their market share by starting a price war. As the Saudis know, in the short term, they can drop the price of oil by upping production without seriously hurting their ability to function, as long as things don't go too long, and yeah. as long as the other side knuckles under, which happened in 2015, when they spiked fracking in the face. Yeah. And then the thing that... Oh, even before that. Um, so, somewhere around April, um, a lot of um, a lot of the investment arms start looking a little alarmed. Um, their positions are looking increasingly untenable, and they start bailing out. Um, and now, um, you have to understand, a lot of how this works, in the United States at, at the very least, is private investors um, have an extraction company, they apply for loans, um, using the oil they will extract as collateral, and <laughs> anyway, um, Blurf. So now that um, basically, so basically, you know, you got a bunch of companies that they need to keep extracting oil to pay off their um, their debts, and they also need new sources of credit so that they can keep the ball rolling and somewhere in somewhere in early april that seized up because jp morgan chase <laughs> yep yep they um basically bailed on arctic oil and that kind of started a stampede for the exits um and the thing that pushed this, again, goes back to that whole cost of production problem. Yeah. Of once Saudi Arabia and Russia got into their price war, which very rapidly escalated from being a mere price war to a dick-measuring contest that would be decided using sausage grinders, that mm. this throttled the price of oil. And it dropped it well below what could have possibly been profitable for Arctic drilling, for offshore drilling, 
ab- you can absolutely forget fracking because fracking started just completely imploding at this point. This is not just where you see banks bailing out on new uh, investment in places like the Arctic. This is also when you start seeing fracking just fall off a cliff. Like the number of new rigs starting drops, rigs start being closed down. And companies are starting to wonder how the hell they're going to get out of this one. Yeah, I mean, it was a very, very bad time to be part of an extraction company. Um, Especially if you were, if you didn't have, like, a completion and you didn't actually have any barrels to sell. Like... If you were, like, halfway for a drilling project and then, you know, the coronavirus happened, you were maximally fucked. Because, you know, you can't really continue because um, there's no demand for what you're about to sell. But you're already um, dealing with the sunk cost. <laughs> um, so you're fucked. You're absolutely, you're absolutely fucked. And... For the companies that had actually completed their drills and such, they can't expand, um, and the barrels they do have are getting harder and harder to sell off, and oil futures go negative. Um, yep. And this also, <laughs> as oil futures were going negative, April was also when you first started seeing reports of big oil super majors capping wells and this is a trend that has continued throughout the year it hasn't stopped and the reason this is so big is once an oil well is capped it's done it doesn't matter how much oil's under there it doesn't matter how cheap that oil would be to refine when the well is capped that well is dead there is no safe way to uncap an oil well even for the Captain Planet villains who run the oil industry. Yeah. And so you have to restart the entire drilling process all over again, except now you've got an existing uh, you've got an existing well shaft that you've got to deal with now, which is much more that increases the risk of the project even further. Um and, you know, even if things are going well, um, you know, you still have to pay for that. They are not supposed to slow down. They are <laughs> supposed to keep expanding. Like, it's this is even this isn't even just like a business model problem. This is a literal equipment problem. Like this kind of drills and equipment that are used in oil fields to pump oil out of the ground are designed to not sit idle for extended periods. They are supposed to be operating 90% of the time. Yeah. Like, they're not supposed to stop. Like, this is a shark that cannot stop swimming. If it does, it stops breathing. And... You know, oil futures going negative for the first time in I don't know when. That, like, that's where we get to the other side of it, of oil, like a lot of other commodities, is traded in futures exchanges. 
So this doesn't mean you just call up Shell and say, I'd like a million barrels, please. It's more you go to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and you find someone who has a contract guaranteeing a delivery of a million barrels from Shell at this particular date at a predetermined price. Yeah. The pro- and the point is to s- that futures stabilize markets. And when you're talking commodities, they mostly do, to an extent. Unfortunately... If you're stuck holding that contract where you're paying 50 a barrel and you can't even sell it for 50 a barrel now, mm-hmm. that contract is suddenly looking kind of shit and you want to get rid of it. Yeah. You do not want to be in the position of holding a mature contract. Um, it's fairly rare that you end up having to physically take delivery of a commodity when it when this sort of weird shit happens to you. But... <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to be holding the bag on this one, trust me. And so, it gets to the point where because there's, you know, there's already a backlog of oil... Uh, there's a glut of it. It's not moving. Um, refinery capacity is filling up. There are not enough takers. And you still have to pay to store this stuff. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's part of the problem, is this oil needs to be delivered to this terminal, and your share of it is spoken for under this contract, but you do not want to be holding that fucking bag if you're an investor. And so the price went negative. Yep. It was beautiful. <laughs> you had to pay to get rid of the contract. This rarely happens. This never happens for oil until it did. Um, this was about when Russia and Saudi Arabia finally stopped with the sausage grinders but by then the damage was done yeah and it just continued through the rest of the year the bleeding from that sucking chest wound that oil had inflicted on itself continued to grow like by may 6th shell divested from somewhere in the neighborhood of half a billion dollars worth of natural gas fields in Appalachia. On August 8th, more banks joined J.P. Morgan Chase in saying, actually, that Arctic drilling thing is not profitable. We're getting the hell out. And then the next big one, which was even bigger in many ways (laughs) than oil going negative, was August 25th, when for the first time ever, the ExxonMobil was dropped from the Dow Jones Industrial Average. This is a company that has been on the Dow since 1928. They made it through the Great Depression, the Second World War, the 70s, the fucking 80s, the Iraq War, everything. They made it through all the fucking ups and downs of the oil industry, staying as a rock-solid, blue-blooded, blue-chip stock. And on August 25th, it was over. Yeah. That doesn't mean they completely died, but 
that was the moment when their market cap shrunk so much that they were no longer one of the top companies in the U.S. by value. Yeah. And they've just been shrinking ever since. In fact, in our last regular episode, we talked about a Bloomberg reporter who pointed out that as of time of recording, there are now renewable energy companies with greater valuation than ExxonMobil. Yeah. Like, this is not a good time to be in oil and gas positions. <laughs> and Yeah. I, we cannot stress this enough. ExxonMobil, for since fucking forever, like both our lifetimes easily, has been the most valuable company in the United States. Yeah. They're they're an institution like it is impossible for them to go under in this way and not even like you know those piss out little banks that got themselves in trouble with you know mortgage backed securities i mean those guys were playing with fire um but oil and gas you know it, that's steady there's no well, there's no game here because you're producing a real product. Um, and, and it's a product everyone needs. Yes. You hold the entire modern post-industrial world by the balls when you're an oil and gas company. Except... Now. Now. <laughs> <laughs> the price was so valuable until it stopped being valuable oh shit oh shit oh shit oh shit oops and it just goes downhill for the rest of the year on september 21st shell oil shell being by the way a fuck off unbelievably ancient pedigreed company whose origins go back to the 1880s announced their transition away from oil and gas. Where nat gas and oil were now no longer priorities for them, and that they were announcing that they were moving out of what was their bread and butter to put it all on renewables. So yeah, one of the fucking granddaddies of oil bailing out. It just, it keeps happening. We keep moving from L to L. Yep, nothing. And there was no signs of recovery. And shit just kept going. And by the way, in the land of fracking, shit kept falling off a cliff. By July 23rd, that fracking boom that was there, gone. Fracking companies had been dropping like flies. Occidental Petroleum was dead, and they were the longest on shale oil yeah. of any of these players. And, like, the, uh, it's like it's not like this stuff hasn't happened before, but this time, um, this time around, it, um, they took the hit precisely when they could least afford it. I mean... There's always been boom and bust cycles in oil. Um, but when you start hearing the words permanent loss of capacity being thrown around, that's new. That's um, new. 
like by October first, as reported reported in Reuters, thirty six producers of oil and gas had filed for bankruptcy, and this put bankruptcies on track for the largest ever in one year since twenty sixteen when uh, Saudi Arabia fucking with fracking fucked over a yeah. lot of fracking companies. It was estimated by October 3rd that the super majors plans to divest. Now, this isn't just Shell. This is all of the big players. We're estimated to be around like $100 billion in value that they were just looking to get the hell out of as fast as possible. Like, by this point, ExxonMobil had already written off, which means gave the fuck up. On twenty billion dollars worth of assets, <laughs> and B of A on October eighth landed the final nail in the coffin for extreme oil in the Americas when they announced they were getting yeah. the hell out of. Our they were well, well. We should probably. Cl- <laughs> I mean, we should probably clarify that one. <laughs> they. They were doing uh, marginal oil plays, but they'd never done one in the Arctic, um, as far as I know. Um, and they were like, the, well, we didn't used to have these positions, but we're not going to open any new ones. Um, because their thing was, you know, continental. Um, and... <clears throat> So what that meant was um, Trump has been trying to sell um, a, a series of leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Reserve and none of the major banks are willing to finance it. Um, there's no there's no real appetite for this play partly because it's so small Um, and partly because they care more about profits than about, you know, appeasing pro-oil politicians. (laughs) Like, you know, Donald Trump. Like, he's the one who made this into a culture war thing. (laughs) Which was dumb as rocks, because... There, he even tried to take the banks to court with a discrimination suit, and yeah, that went about yeah. as well as you can expect. He basically took the L on it, so I suspect that there might be buyers for this, but nobody wants to touch it because the incoming administration will probably make their lives hell anyway, and there's no institutional buy-in. Like, what are you going to do? And this this is a business that runs so heavily on revolving debt. Like, if you can't get some debt to make this happen, you can't make the play. Just end of. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. This is where it's at and nothing better confirms that than a news item from november 3rd 
which brings us pretty close to present day. I mean, there's since been developments that we've been covering, but the last big one is on November 3rd, Shell announced that they were going to be divesting from eight out of their 14 refinery complexes by 2025. That is an oil super major who has not only said we are getting the hell out of oil and gas, saying, and we are actively ditching more than half of our refining capacity. We are not expecting to expand to levels where we're going to need this much production. And the six remaining facilities are also being retooled to be more generalized chemical production facilities and not dedicated oil like that's that's the play that at least some in the industry have speculated on being the path forward if there's no interest in transportation oils then uh, plastic rules the world uh, the world um it rules industry and you know oil rules industry and there have been major strides in getting us off of oil for, you know, industrial and consumer needs, but it's not enough to sustain this sort of production. And that ties in again to the whole, um, the fact that, you know, at the very least in the Americas, most of our plays are garbage for that sort of thing. And so for Shell to be like, we're just not going to bother with that segment anymore, that's that's pretty telling, I think. Like, they're, they're pretty much closing the door on... <laughs> on their interests in fuel production. That's what it's looking like here. <laughs> that's where it's at. This is... I mean, that's the picture. Oil yeah. is fucked as an industry. They're not coming back from this. They have a competitor now that completely outstrips them by all measures, including, by the way, for anyone who's thinking beyond the end of this quarter, in terms of stability. Like, if you're going to do any kind of economic planning, whether you're talking your corporate budget or the United States government or, you know, something that approaches a more socialist model of production... Yeah. Renewables are reliable in terms of pricing. The price of sun doesn't go up or down. The same with wind. Geothermal is, in fact, experiencing a new revolution in that they found new ways to drill geothermal wells in places that previously you couldn't, because normally you needed a naturally occurring hot spring to even have a shot. So, across the board, oil is facing competition and is being forced to retreat on every front. Like, 
it would not be a stretch to imagine that the only players left in the actual oil industry for oil as fuel and oil as energy by 2025 will be state-owned companies like Saudi Aramco and the various Russian oligarchy Venezuela, Setco, um, uh, the uh, Norwegian, um, (laughs) who's also been divesting, by the way, in their sovereign wealth fund away from fossil fuels for the last five years. Yeah. So they can read the writing on the wall. And it's just, at this point, there's just no point in staying in. Um, now, what that means for the rest of us, <sighs> part of it is watch this space. Um, yeah, like this, it, the oil industry is still not going to go quietly, but right now they're a little busy holding their guts in. Um, and, one thing that oh, that's obviously concerning is the prospect of oil and gas getting bailed out. And we don't mean like, you know, the workers getting bailed out. We mean all of these little fracking institutions get bailed out, explorers get bailed out, refineries get bailed out. Um... Yeah. Which we could totally see Biden doing. Like, on one hand, we are probably one of the only left outlets that has not given two shits about Biden saying, I won't ban fracking because we've been sitting over here giggling in the corner about how fracking is, like, deader than a frog with a firecracker up its ass. But, you know, like, from a market perspective... Yeah, you can promise not to ban fracking all you want, Joe. It's not going to change that that industry is dead. <laughs> dead, dead, fucking dead. I mean, Shit Trump promised to bring back um, coal, and where's coal now? <laughs> I, and that's, that's what worries me. But, yeah, yeah. Buying real I mean, from Aquaman. What um, worries me is that, like... What may end up happening is um, oil companies that can't divest or, like, unwise retool. Like, some of the explorers can probably move into geothermal and such. In fact, some of the um, some of the deep geothermal projects have used fracking expertise to, um, to make those happen. Um, and the techniques. But the problem is, is that not every explorer can do that. Um, not every refinery can switch over to general chemical production. Not like there's going to be a lot of losers. Um, and what I'm, af- what I'm afraid of is like the, the execs are going to get fat bonuses to walk away from it. And, you know, Pennsylvania's left a wreck. Or West Texas. Or Alberta. (laughs) 
yeah, repeated yeah. what they did for Wall they, Street, if you will. Bankers fucked up, bankers get yeah. bailed out, homeowners... They're told out. that, you know, sorry, there's no more jobs, but um, have fun with your burning water. <sighs> Pretty much. They, they'll do a whole fucking Silent Hill Centralia bullshit of just leaving these places to fester and walk away. Yeah. And also worth mentioning... Because this is something that's been kind of unclear so far, and this has probably been the thing that's had us scratching our heads this whole year as this shit's been unfolding, is what the hell is this doing to finance? Because so far, I mean, we've seen banks walking away from Arctic drilling and from different forms of extreme drilling. We have been seeing divestment happening by a lot of significant financial institutions who can read the writing on the wall. But that really hasn't answered the question of what's happened to the debt that's already outstanding for these companies <laughs> that's held by some of the biggest <laughs> banks on the planet. And so far, there's been no evidence of finance taking this hit. Like, we have no clue how they've been able to do this. Like, my best guess is the nine trillion dollars the fed farted into space back when covid started wasn't to protect well it was probably partly to protect wall street from its own general stupidity but it was also probably specifically to protect wall street from the consequences of its yeah. biggest blue chip going yeah out. i mean that's the only way i can square it is that that bailout money was used in part to not eat shit and die because we've seen stuff from Moody's and Fitch that, and other analysts that they're expecting the level of defaults from energy-related loans to easily break 20% by the end of 2020. And for those keeping score at home, this is 20% of all energy-related lending. This is not... For point of comparison, 8% of all subprime mortgages, which was enough to melt down yeah. the financial system in 2008. There's one-fifth of all credit tied up in an yeah. industry that's not supposed to go Is anywhere. that for, like, every... That's for, like, every single energy play, no matter what it is, right? Holy shit! Yeah. But most of that, of course, yeah, most of that goes into, you know, oil, gas, and coal, because that's where most of the game is. But And you can bet that disproportionately, that's where these defaults are going to come from. So it sort of remains an open question how the fuck Wall Street has dodged this bullet. And I suspect yeah. they actually have Like, they made it clear back in September that the Federal Reserve is not going to be able to do that sort of Hail Mary... Um, nine trillion dollar bullshit again um they cannot launch that much cash into space and you know expect you know expect the whole um reserve currency status to hold um i mean eventually you know push comes to shove and that breaks down and on top of that, you know, they just 
they don't have the money. That was that was an extraordinary measure. I don't know if they'll be able to do it again. It's not yeah. about and everyone else calling bullshit. It's like, do you really want to bail out the fossil fuel industry? Um, do you want to bail out all the financial institutions who stayed in this extremely volatile game? Um, you know, just because. Oh, well, they're the fossil fuel industry and they need to be kept alive because of America and blah, 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 blah. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And it's, and it's worth pointing out that, you know, assuming there's a Biden bailout, which, you know, I would definitely put that pretty close mm-hmm. to the middle of my bingo chart for 2021. Mr. We Won't Ban Fracking will absolutely be the kind of guy who'd be willing to bail out fracking from its own fuckery. That bailout will not save the industry. At this point, market realities have foreclosed on fossil fuels. And as brainwormed as Biden's brain trust is, even they can see this. I mean, I just... They don't seem interested in providing an alternative. Uh, the Green New Deal was supposed to be in part that alternative, but... Because remember, the Green New Deal wasn't just we're going to ramp up renewables, it was also we're going to get new jobs and retraining and paid compensated retraining, by the way, for the people who have been left high yeah. and dry by fossil I mean, fuel nobody wants a repeat of, you know, the other, uh, the other devastation and hollowing out that happened to coal country. Like, nobody wants that again. And yet, I don't have that much confidence in the Biden administration to either say, well, we gave you uh, free bucks and a, um, a Happy Meal certificate. Um, uh, bye. I don't trust them to not do that to um, to oil workers. Oh, no. No. Like, and even if they do, their big bailout, that's what it's going to be. It's, mm-hmm. also, it's not going to save the industry. Like, at this point, any bailout would not be there to save the industry. Yeah. It would be there to save it the industry. It would investors. be to refloat all that toxic paper and let everyone write it down and pretend nothing happened. We're just going to push the demise of the oil industry under the carpet. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's where that's what i think they're gonna go for and that's really the big thing along with many other things like environmental racism the concerns of frontline communities and all these things that the green movement has put front and center for the last several years that's going to need to be on people's minds over the course of the next decade is at this point the question is not going to be one of beating fossil fuels It's going to be making sure there's a just transition for the people who got fucked by fossil fuels and to also make sure that the new 
green economy that shows up is not going to be some kind of pathetic rehash of the same yeah. bullshit that got us into yeah. this mess. I mean, that's... <laughs> like, these are the kind of people who would absolutely be okay with fucking children going down into acid-washed lithium yeah. mines because it's Well, green. I mean, don't you know their their lives are worthless? I mean... Or why is they would have investment banker jobs? <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, that's 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 their half of what I'm worried about is they're just going to turn you know lithium extraction and such into another rerun of the whole <laughs> of this whole shit show and. That's already been happening, yeah. which is not good. <sighs> yeah. Remember how Elon Musk boasted about the shit show coup in Bolivia being his work? Yeah. His work? Come on, that stuff's <laughs> not going to stop. So that's kind of where, at least in our opinion, the focus needs to be for the green movement is it needs to be in just transition. It needs to be in something that's going to actually clean up the mess. These bastards are going to leave us with and making sure that what comes next is not just going to be yeah. a shitty imitation of the same thing that gave us these problems. That's going to go, Hey, we got the emissions down. We just had to, you know, fuck over, all these marginalized yeah. communities in the process. We had to bathe these kids in some horrific sulfuric slurry so that you yeah. don't have to worry about your carbon footprint. <laughs> Which, yeah, that's that's fucking bleak. But that's that's why we fight. Yeah. And let's, you know, to be clear, we're not taking the whole primitivist thing of... Uh, fuck it, none of this stuff is sustainable, let's go back to, like, berries and uh, stone arrowheads or something. Uh, there are equitable, sustainable ways to do renewable energy. There are examples of things like the country of Sweden, for example, literally has to import garbage because their recycling systems are so efficient that they've outstripped Sweden's <laughs> waste production. <laughs> like, there are ways to do this that don't require shitting on other people. But, yeah, this is... Is this it? Yeah, I mean, we're at a great opportunity. We just got dealt a huge fucking mulligan. Oh, yeah. On the climate. <sighs> All right, then. This has been our Chop Shop special report on the death of oil. We read all this shit so you don't have to. Though, so you really should read this shit because it's fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah.
Oh like yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>